In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Let us hear our Lord's blessing on those who follow him. So we began, and we heard the blessings, blessing upon blessing, pouring out upon the followers of Christ, upon the poor in spirit, upon those who mourn, upon the meek, upon the merciful, upon the peacemakers, upon those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, upon those who suffer persecution for righteousness' sake, upon the pure in heart. Losers, <laughs> all losers. If ever there was a time and a place when people like this were winners in the world's eyes, that time is not now and that place is not here. Maybe those who hunger and thirst after self-righteousness, maybe, but righteousness, being justified in the eyes of God and self-righteousness are as far apart as east and west as red and blue and being driven further and further apart every day as this new style of humanity is promulgated from the high places. New? No. It's as old as the Temple Mount, from whose commanding heights we see in today's gospel the glory shone forth on the city on the shining hill. The glory of God? No, God was not in there in the temple at that time. One day it was said he would be back, and on that day, and only on that day, Judea would win back her independence from her Roman overlords. For now God was gone, and the glory of Herod would have to suffice. Not real foe, but as imitations go, not bad. And Herod was more than willing to play that part, to play the strong man for as long as he could, and as long as he played his cards, as long as the strings that tied his puppet hands and puppet head to the Roman masters were strong, he could play that part. As long as he was manipulated by the prince of this world through Caesar and his governors, he was as close to God as any man could be. A hollow shell then, like the temple, which was resplendent on the outside, empty within, the humble attempts of returning Babylonian exiles notwithstanding, their sincere attempts were soon overwhelmed with the grand gestures of this ambitious Idumean, appointed king of the Jews by the Roman Senate in 40 BC. The massing of its dolomitic limestone, rose and white and gold, monumental in outline and delicate in detail, was to capture the imagination of Jerusalem, just as it was the first place at the rising sun to capture the dawn's rays and the last to surrender them at sunset. It was being built now by Herod, a long-term project for eternity, and it might take eternity to get it done. So Herod hoped history had different notions. Another king, not from this world, says of it today, as for these things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. And so it was. However, it's impossible to calculate the effect that those words would have had on Jesus' hearers. Stunned silence, in which only 
utter disbelief would thwart every attempt to scramble some thoughts and assemble them into something sensible. The best they can muster then is to ask one question, when? When will all this happen? They get their answer. When everything else in the world is falling apart as well, Jesus says. When the astronomical and the geological and the biological and the political orders are all being disrupted, throwing everything, everything to and fro, even those great cyclopean stones. And this is not the beginning of the end, but only the end of the beginning of the end. And you, he says, will get front row seats from prison if you are still alive, if they have not killed you first. They'll round you up like they round up animals for the sacrifice. And this is the good news, for you will be able to witness, to tell your faith story before they tire of listening and dispose of you. So make it good. What will you say? Don't think about it now, for heaven's sake. Don't think about it at all, for it will all come from heaven. Every thought, every word, just when you need it, will be given to you by the Spirit of God. When that moment comes, just let go. Surrender, and your victory is close. How did they do? Probably gloriously. They had their victory. When all this did indeed happen, at least at the social level in 70 AD, it must have seemed like the end, the end of the Christian way. But it wasn't. They won. It was a bloody battle, but they won. They stood firm. The blood they shed was entirely their own blood and theirs alone. They didn't fight to a man, to a woman, to a child, they didn't fight, and they won. Blessed are the pure in heart, our Lord has taught, and purity of heart, as Kierkegaard said, is to will one thing, not to one thing alone. Martin Luther King said it this way, if a man, a woman, has not discovered something he, she will die for. She or he isn't fit to live. Until you found the one thing in your life that is worth more than life itself, your life has not yet begun. One thing, though, that's all it takes. And you can live your life, live and die, and never know that one thing. Few are as inspired as they were anymore. We more fortunate ones have much to live for, too much, too many things. And as hard as we try to be content and to count our blessings, we find that only serves us to look around and count the blessings of others and see how much better they are doing. The pure of heart are those who will die for that one thing that they want, that one thing that God wants for them. Just this week, another shooting in a school here. The shooter later died of self-inflicted wounds. We didn't know if the shooter had a clear view of us or not. We just sprinted and we just prayed like for our lives, one student told CBS. I actually thought I was going to die. There's a link here. He too thought he was going to die. He ran, he found safety. He was spared the death at the hands of a terrorist. 
For all of this is terrorism, whether it springs up in our schools or whether it springs up in Syria, whether it happens spontaneously or whether it's the result of years of preparation. The word for all of this is terrorism, domestic, foreign, or imported. Rene Girard writes of terrorists that, and I quote, for us, for us Christians, it makes no sense to be ready to pay with one's own life for the pleasure of seeing someone else die. Let me quote this again. This is terrorism. To be ready to pay with one's own life for the pleasure of seeing another die. Yes, you should find the thing for which you will give up even your own life. There's a little bit more to it than that. And if there's one thing that the gospel should have done for us, when it has taken, is taken away ever so gently from us, the satisfaction that comes from seeing even the guilty die. It should have robbed us of any taste for vengeance, of succumbing to the numbing notion that vindication will validate the life lost for the living, that the taking of life can ever give justice, can ever bring peace. It cannot, it does not. That whole system of wounded honor and revenge, that concatenation of taking a life for every life lost, never made anyone a winner. It only extended the reach of despair. And that's not how God works either. We have centuries of atonement theory to clear our way through. Some of it has served its time. The idea that a life for a life is demanded by God, blood for, blood for blood, as if his wounded honor would be satisfied with nothing else, was a beautiful idea in the year 1000. It's gotten less beautiful as history has moved on. And how much we see of it in scripture just like that is open to debate. The God we see in Jesus Christ, unlike other so-called gods, is not a prisoner of his own majesty, as quick as we are to imprison him in just that. He comes down from his power and glory to be born in a feeding trough and die on a cross, to pronounce a blessing not on the victors, though not not on the victors, to pronounce a blessing on his fellow losers. What have we got to lose? Plenty. What's the one thing that we want to see and be and do in whatever time we have been given to live? That's another question. If we're standing still and still waiting for the end of time, trying to keep our heads down and play it safe until the rapture, Paul has only one word of advice. You better look busy. Jesus is coming. But if we found that one thing more, which animates our hopes, our dreams, and also our life's work. That one thing that is this, what this world needs and yearns and aches for more than anything else, that we've, we have found something indeed of greater worth than anything else. We may have to think on that, or better, we may have to empty our minds 
and pray and wait and be ready to wait and wait until God speaks that one thing into our hearts. My belief is that he's already spoken that into all of our hearts. But the work we have to do is very gently to recover it, to tease it back into life. We wait on God, then, for his word to us. And we don't give up waiting until we've heard. It may take a while. I spent some time in the last three years, especially with young uh, people, young women particularly, 20-somethings, who are working through college, coming in with gifts from God of just that, of what it is that they hope to see in this world, if this world could be changed. And then as the years go on and graduation time comes, you see them all, very responsible students, begin to think, okay, what am I really going to do when I start paying back this loan, go out and look for a job, maybe want to get married, and one of us had better have a job or we can't do that. And you see that one thing start to be gently set aside. It can be teased out if you persist, but it's usually not. Who helps? Who helps us to put those dreams aside? Those who mean well, as Jesus said, our families, our friends. They're not betraying us as such. They're being practical and down to earth and full of sound advice. This is what you need. I know what you want to do. Another English major, forget it. This is what you better think about doing. But I wonder if the most well-meaning people in our lives betray us when they try to shepherd us away from that impossible thing that God has put in our hearts. And if it's really God, it's going to look really impossible, and you're going to be afraid, and you're going to be panicking. And God is going to be smiling on you and saying, hang on and hang in. Don't be distracted by what you think your strengths are or your weaknesses. God majors in weakness. Above all, don't be anxious. Don't be afraid. So make up your minds not to prepare your defense in advance. There's no need for second guessing for qualifying for plans A, B, and C. I will give you the words. I'll place them in the heart and a wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand or contradict. I'll give you a sureness about what you and only you are being called to do. I will give you the words, the visions, and the dreams, and maybe he already has, and you've received them and cherished them and hold them in your heart like Mary, and you're afraid like Mary. What if you fail? What if it doesn't all work out for you? But you know what you love and what you live for and what you've got to do is start loving and living for it right now and put everything you've got into it so when your chance comes, you'll be ready. You've got to risk everything, put all your eggs in one basket, even now, even if you spend decades frying eggs or flipping burgers, waiting for your moment to come, and you'd better be ready when that moment comes. You have to live every moment. 
for what God has called you to do, no matter what the immediate future brings. What's the one thing that you want to see in the world then? In everybody's life too, and not just yours. It's not what you imagine yourself doing. It's not like looking in a mirror and seeing yourself with all the status and security and professional acumen and genius. Just leave that aside. The train's gone from the station if that's where you are. What do you live for? As Dr. King said, what's the X factor here? What's the thing that is most important in which everything else in the world feeds in? The thing that you would proclaim and support with what you've got if you had the courage. For me, that one thing is beauty. The beauty of the Lord, beauty as the portal the place in which truth and goodness are held together. The neglected stepchild of philosophy. How many philosophy departments are there without a full-time, brilliant, gifted, specialist in aesthetics on the faculty? Don't ask. We favor truth, we favor goodness. Beauty, somewhere else. This is what we're fighting, if beauty is what you want. Now, I started my career working in a place where I had a fair chance of making a few beautiful things. I worked in the theater where actually there's a ton of creativity, a precious little beauty. Beauty is an option in most design. But I wanted to work for beauty in the big houses doing opera. And I had my chance. You've got a battle, I tell you, if you want to make a bit of beauty. And it's a fight from beginning to end. But it's worth it when it happens. For some reason, God got, put it into my heart that I was now being called to serve the Protestant church. Let me tell you, if beauty's on your heart and you're headed to the <laughs> Protestant church, it feels a lot like dying, all right? <laughs> you don't come to the Protestant church looking for beauty, and if you do, well, the bar gets set down. You'll settle for creativity, not the same thing at all. That's my story. We'll get to that there. I found myself in a far better place than I would ever have brought myself if I'd followed my plan for what God had to do for me when he put that dream in my heart. I'm still waiting for the real rector of all souls to show up. (laughs) And it's only those conditions that allow me to be here that someone really gifted, really meant for this job is on the way. But in the meantime, I found beauty here like you wouldn't believe, like you wouldn't believe. That's another story. What's the thing of which you would say, I live for this, is the question I ask for you. And I wish that someone in the world would help you find it. Because if you don't do the one thing that you can do, no one else will do it. I'm done now. Just another little quote. We've heard from Dr. Martin Luther King. Now let's hear from Martin Luther. It's an apocryphal story. It's been around. I've told it too many times. One more time. It's a good story. It seems that someone once asked Dr. Luther, if the world were to end tomorrow, what would you do today? He answered that, if the world were to end tomorrow, I would go today into my garden and plant an apple tree. Eternal verities, present possibilities. 
Facing up even to absolute doom, Luther follows his heart in trust that somehow God, in the weakness, in the trust, in the surrender with which we approach our vocation, will be led through, through the Red Sea, through the desert, to the place where only God will do with us what only God can do, and he will get the glory. What do you want to plant in the world? That's my question. To see grow for the life of the nations. What will you plant, water, manure, prune, care for, fret over, watch over in this world, even as the cold winds blow and everyone around you looks the other way and thinks you're an idiot? That's the key. What do you want this world to be? What do you want it to be when you grow up, if you grow up, and don't grow up too soon? But what do you want the world to be that you and your children will grow up into? It rests with you. What has to be but isn't yet. And when God asks you, who will go for me into the world and do this and make it so, you can be modest. But listen when your heart says, here I am, send me. Amen.